0: Okay, let's take our Bibles again and turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Let me read this morning from passages uh, chapter 1 verse 22 to chapter 2 verse 3. Verse 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers. And the flower falls off, but if the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word which was preached to you, therefore putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, again, this morning, as we come to your eternal word that will never pass away, I pray, Lord, that we would come to love it and crave for it every day, that it would be the spiritual food for our soul, and that without it, we would feel like we're starving, like not having air to breathe, we would feel like we're suffocating. So, Lord, I pray this morning as we look at the Word of God, we see what it says, that we, Lord, would again bring us to understand it and to then also apply it to our own lives. So, Lord, the Spirit of God can use the Word of God to sanctify us and grow us in respect to salvation. I pray that we would always be clear on the matter of salvation. It would never be... a a cloudy thing in our mind, but it would always be something crystal clear that we would not only understand ourselves, but we'd be able to explain to others. So bless us this morning, Lord, as we look at this portion of Scripture in Christ. I pray, Amen. All right, so we are now in uh, the latter part of verse of chapter number one, and of course, uh, this first section of Scripture is preparing us, and equipping us for what lies ahead, for the hostilities that we'll be facing in our life as aliens living in this world, hostilities that will come from within, from our own heart, hostilities that will come outside from the world system, hostilities that will come from other people, and, of course, hostilities that will come from our spiritual enemy, the devil and his minions that are against us. So far we have been looking at each one of these exhortations that are all in the realm of salvation, understanding salvation. And we have, we have observed so far that we are exhorted to uh, have a fixed hope, having our minds prepared for action, to keep sober, to fix our hope on the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and of course, for the purpose of prayer and resisting the enemy. Secondly, we were exhorted to live, and we are to live a holy life. Under that exhortation, there were two uh, points one, that we are warned not to do or be what we used to be uh, in our new spiritual natures, but we are now to be what we ought to be in our new spiritual natures. And what is that? That is to be holy, because it is written in verse 16, you shall be holy for I am holy. And then we were exhorted, thirdly, uh, to fear God, to fear God the Father. In verse number 17, if you address as Father, the one who is impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. So as believers, address the Father as now they're his children, they should never forget that he is an impartial judge to his children, and uh, he is without respect of persons, judging each one according to their deeds, according to their works after conversion. And then, of course, we should have that reverential fear of an obedient child to a loving father And to do it in a way where we don't take God lightly but we take God very seriously and we're never indifferent to what he is teaching us. So we should have a high level of respect and care and humility towards God and that reverence really rests upon two things, a knowledge, uh, the knowledge that we have of God's holy character from the word of God uh, and, of course, the knowledge we have been given uh, of God's plan of redemption and then, of course, so far, we have uh, seen that to have a fixed future hope, to live a, holy, a life of holiness, and to fear God have been preparing us to understand our vertical relationship with our God. And, of course, now we come to the place where our vertical relationship with God spills over into our horizontal relationship with others, and even spills over into our relationship with ourself understanding ourselves better than we ever have since we become a believer so this last exhortation i looked at last time is a christian christians are exhorted to love one another uh, in verse number 22 of first peter it says since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren fervently love one another from the heart so again if we were able to love people in this way, we would have no need to be exhorted to love one another. For the most part, the love we thought we had for others was driven usually by selfishness or superstitions or sensuality, social disorders and personal excesses, usually always flowing out of an evil and sinful heart. So this portion of Scripture is really describing for us what it looks like living as new people of God. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And as children of God, we now have this new life in Christ, and there are new patterns that we notice, and there are new principles that we must learn and then live accordingly. And so far, we've seen that the first one is that there are new patterns of life, uh, a life characterized by ongoing inward purity, where it says in verse 22, in the middle of that verse, to the truth, uh, purify your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. And then secondly, a life that is committed to growing in that love, fervently loving one another. That means it's going to take work to be able to love in that way. And the motive and the ability to obey this command to love flow from the new birth, from the new life that it, it opens up. In other words, the divine seed of God in the gospel implanted in our heart will produce in us this divine love, but it will also produce in us the holiness and the reverence, and the future look as a believer to know that this life is short, but it, the Christian life is heading somewhere, and so we're living with this in our mind and understanding the things that God has been doing. One uh, commentator named David, David, David Helm writes in his uh, understanding of 1 Peter, he says, in God's book, we have found life. Through it, then, let us express love. Peter wants Christians everywhere to be people known for living lives that demonstrate God's love. Time is short. All flesh is like grass. Get about, he said, the business of growing up in love. And that's a good way to put it. We are to grow up in this particular characteristic of the Christian life. Now, how is it? How is it that anyone can grow in this kind of love, this kind of holiness, this kind of reverence, this kind of of a fixed future, fixed hope on the revelation of Jesus Christ. How can that actually happen? That's, that's not normal thinking. That's not human thinking. That's not worldly thinking. It, gets, it has to come from somewhere, and that's how you know you, you have new life in Christ. It, it's, it's a different way of the, uh, different things going on in your life, and so this pattern uh, really leads into certain principles. And we have a new principle of life. And look at verse number 23, what it says of chapter 1. It says, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. So in other words, in this one, we get this sense, and you should actually feel this sense as a believer, that a new life in Christ is characterized by the eternal intention with the temporal. In other words, we're still here, right? But we're growing with an eternal supernatural mindset that is coming to us from God through his word, and so therefore we get this sense that there is a tension going on. We wrestle against the spirit, right? We wrestle against the, the, um, the flow of the world. We wrestle against things we used to know and, and were taught, and now we know they're not right anymore. And so there's this tension that happens as we live this new principle of life. And, of course, that new principle of life comes because we have been, Noticeable how it says it, we have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That means that the origin the origin of our new life is, first of all, the origin is that of, of the seed, of divine seed. This origin of the seed is from God himself, and has inside of it an enduring life that cannot perish. When this non-perishable seed drops into a heart, prepared to receive it, it can only produce life. Life presently that will produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the strength and endurance to live for God, and in the future, a life that will never end. That's the promise that we have as a believers. These things have been written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. So believers know this, all right? but they may know it theoretically, but they don't always quickly receive it practically. Right now, Peter is talking about practically understanding this whole thing that you are definitely different than before. And you have an eternal life going on inside of you. And so this word used here in verse number 23 for seed, the focus, uh, it focuses more on the process of sowing than on the seed as such. The contrast be, it, it being drawn is between the human seed, which produces mortal life, and the divine seed, which produces eternal life. So what proceeds from human seed in reproduction is perishable. It's corruptible. It brings corruptible results. And what proceeds from the divine seed in reproduction is that it is imperishable, and it produces incorruptible Results. So that's the first thing to understand about this new life that we have, that it comes from this divine seed that has been planted in our heart by God. All right, so that's where the origin of it is from. But from that, there is the instrument of the new birth. The instrument of the new birth found in uh, verse number 23. It says this, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. So the instrument of the new birth is the word of God. That is what it is, the eternal word of God. And so in 1 Peter, uh, the process goes like this in the Christian life. The word of God, that is the divine seed, enters into your heart as seed, of course, the gospel message, centered in on Jesus Christ and the cross. That seed regenerates you. You become born again, right? That you repent and you believe the gospel. It imparts to you eternal life. And that from that point, it overcomes that which is corruptible and perishing in your life, and it replaces it with what is incorruptible and will remain forever. That is the process that we all go through as believers, that we come to this place, that we realize this eternal seed has been planted and the instrument of, its, of implanting in our heart was the word of God, meaning that you cannot get saved apart from the word of God. The word of God is the very instrument God uses. It's not going to happen just any old way. It's not going to happen through dreams or visions. It's not going to happen through any of that, all right? It's going to happen through the preaching and teaching of the word of God that by the hearing of the word comes faith, right? And that faith brings a person to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then new life happens in your your heart uh, and God now is now transforming you. He is sanctifying you and that is a process that God wants us to be clear about, and so does Peter, the apostle. The next thing that we see is that there is a, the temporal that is, con- in our text, the, there is the temporal that is contrasted with the eternal. And so in verse number 24, it says here in our text, it says, for all flesh is like grass, and all It's glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. Now, again, what is it talking about? It's talking about the impermanent nature of the natural man. Just think about that for a moment. The natural man. It says here, all flesh is like grass. What does that mean? It means that life is limited, right? Job tells us this in job fourteen five since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you, and his limits you have set so he cannot pass. Lo- job understood that life was limited, also that life is short, is not life short i you, when you read psalm eighty nine through ninety what Moses is really talking about there. Uh, And what's communicated in the psalm is that there was a lot of funerals in the wilderness. A lot of funerals. Every day there may have been two or three or more funerals in the wilderness because that generation was dying as they were heading to the promised land because they disobeyed God. So in Psalm 89 and onwards, you're going to find that kind of language in there. Like it says in in Psalm 89, verse 47 and 8, listen to what it says. Remember... What my span of life is, for what vanity you have created all the sons of men. What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Of course, the answer to that is no. We all are very, very familiar with death. I've been to a lot of funerals and I have done a lot of funerals as a pastor, and till this very day I do not like doing them. Matter of fact, I have a hatred for them. Because you know what? Every time I walk into a funeral home, even whether a person is saved or not saved, I realize this. Death is an enemy. It doesn't even belong here. Like, what is it doing here? You know? And of course, we know how it got here, because the Bible teaches that, right? But it is an enemy, and it will remain an enemy until Lord, the Lord finally completely conquers it, and His plan is finished. Remember Jesus conquered Satan and death, right? So but we're still waiting for all the consummation of the plan of salvation to come to an end. That's why we're looking. Our hope is fixed on Christ at the revelation when it's all done. Another passage, like Psalm ninety, verse five and six. Uh, one person asked me to preach at a youth camp one time uh, on Psalm ninety, and I said to them, "I said, Are you sure about that?" I said, "Well, why?" I said, "This is about a funeral." I said, it's about, like, numbering your days, marking your days on the calendar until the day of your death. You know, so do you really want to do that? And so I did. I don't know if it turned out as well as I thought it would, but the the young people were pretty sober that day because, you know, they don't usually think about death, young people. That's the furthest thing from their mind. And yet they were reminded that they ought to mark their calendars every day and see how they lived for the Lord to offer up to God a heart of wisdom, it says in Psalm 90, right? How did you live today for God? Psalm 90, verse 5 and 6 says, you have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep, that's death. In the morning, and they are like grass, which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it fades and withers away. That's our life. That's our life. James says it like this, yet do you not know or do you not know what your life will be tomorrow? You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. So see, life is limited. It's short. It's uncertain. James gives us that sense. It's uncertain. And you know what? It's full of trouble. Is there anybody here that never had any trouble in this life? Raise your hand. I want to talk to you later, all right? Because you, have, you know something I don't. See, it's, it's full. A matter of fact, that's exactly what Job said. Job 14, verse 1 and 2. Man who is born of woman is short lived and full of turmoil or trouble. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. That is a good view of life. I'm not going to live for a long time. You are not either. Matter of fact, 100, 100 years from now, none of us will be here. That's a sobering thought. But that's exactly what Peter wants us to grasp. He wants us to grasp that. The natural man will fade. They, he's, we're going to wilt. We're going to dry up. In fact, the Greek language uses what they call a nomadic aorist verb. And this is what that means. That this is what always happens. That there's never a time that it doesn't happen. Is there anybody that you know that's two, three hundred years old? I mean, in the Old Testament, we know people like that, but they finally died. And if God decided to sweep some people up to glory, like Enoch, right, and take them, uh, and others, uh, he decided to do that, right? So, but the natural man is going to, they're going to die. And yet, Because man is created in the image of God, man does have a certain glory to them. Humanity has glory to it. That's what it says in our text. It says there, it says, and all its glory like the flowers of grass. What does it mean by that? Well, the glory of the natural man. All that is good about us. All that is fair and attractive about humanity The beauty, the strength, the wealth, the honor, the art, the education, the achievements that human beings accomplish, the greatness of of humanity. We all have uh, certain people that we consider people we would like to be like. And so consider a flower, how beautiful a flower is, and yet we know a flower is going to finally fade off and die, right? Receiving flowers is a very nice gesture. Some people like to receive flowers, and others, not so much. Whatever the preference is, there are some things that are quite obvious about flowers. First, we all know all too soon that the beauty of the flower will begin to fade and droop and fall away. This time of year, when somebody receives a dozen roses, they're picturesque, they're beautiful. They're bright. You get, take them out of the box or they're delivered to you. You water them. You get a little miracle growth to make sure they last as long as they could and keep them alive as, and beautiful as long as you possibly can. But then what's inevitable about those uh, flowers? Well, they fade, they droop, they dry, and then you either keep them and you put them in a book and you smash them in the book and you open it up years later, right? Or you throw them out. That's what happens. So, how, how, how long can a human being remain vibrant, attractive? You know, the beauty industry is a multi billion, trillion dollar industry. If you want, to, believe me, that, that's a recessionless product. <laughs> Doesn't matter what the economy is, they're going to be selling those products, right? And uh, so, but, you know, of course, why? Because we, we want to stay as young and as vibrant and as healthy as possible. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. But see, the bottom line is this. What does it it say in Proverbs chapter 31, verse 30? What does it say there? It says this, charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But it says this, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. You see, it's about the relationship with God someone has is what the eternal part about it is. All the other stuff is going to drop off. It's going to fade away. So in saying all that, man always passes away. We don't like to think about that. It is not thoughts that I like to relish or dwell upon too much, but it is something scripturally we ought to do. We ought to think about the day we're going to die because it's going to affect the way we live. It's going to affect our relationship with the Lord in a a healthy and a good way. See, this new life was not passed down to you or to me from our parents. The life we receive from our earthly parents will fade. It will wither. It will pass away. But the message that came to us from Christ, from our Father who is in heaven, When we believed and received this message of the gospel, it will, and it has implanted new life in us that will last forever because its seed is from God who is eternal in his nature. So the flesh always withers and falls away, but the word of God is always incorruptible and endures forever, always. So, where are we going to spend our time? Well, in verse number 25, we see this, the imperishable nature of the Word of God. So you can see the contrast in Scripture between what passes away and what doesn't pass away, right? So I'm not, we ought to not be spending so much time on what passes away. Let's spend our time on what doesn't pass away. And that's where he is heading in this particular text. Look what it says in verse 25. It says, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Now, if you didn't know that, Peter was quoting from the prophet Isaiah. So I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 40 because that's where it comes from. But I want to set up the context of Isaiah 40 a little bit for you so you can see the sense on what he's communicating in Peter. In Isaiah chapter 40, while you're turning there, the Apostle Peter really quotes from verse 6 through verse 8 of chapter 40. But from chapters 40 to chapter 66, that's the end of the book of Isaiah, the message is about hope. It's about renewal. But while that message was being preached, the people were enduring captivity. They were enduring trouble in this life. So in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6 through 8, the emphasis being the transitory nature of human life in contrast to the eternal life that awaits us. See, by bringing this passage to the attention of the people, Peter intends his readers to see the whole context of Isaiah 40, Peter, Peter's readers are like Israel. In, in Isaiah's day, the people were discouraged. They were uh, on the verge of catastrophe. So this quote is intended to be a word of comfort to them as well as to us today. Notice what it says in Isaiah 40, verse 1. It says, notice how it says it, comfort, comfort my people says the lord your says your god speak kindly to jerusalem and call out to her that her war- warfare has ended and her iniquity has been removed that she has received the lord's double hand double for all her sins and verse 3 a voice is calling clear the way of the lord in the wilderness make smooth in the desert a highway for our god let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let The rough ground become a plain, and the rough terrain a broad valley. Verse 5, this is where Peter quotes from. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verse 6, a voice says, call out. Then he answers, what shall we call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. In verse 8, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. But let's read a little bit, a couple more verses. Look at verse number 9. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. So, and you know what Isaiah, we have here? We have the future look of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was telling the people, someday something's going to happen which is going to come from God and it's going to be good news that will be proclaimed and it will bring eternal life to those who receive it. And this good news comes with Jesus Christ, his message that carries divine seed, which is living and enduring and forever. Now, if you notice, if you've been in the Old Testament, if you notice this passage of scripture, it's talking about part of it, John the Baptist, right? If you notice in verse 3, it says, A voice is calling. Clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. That's John the Baptist. So he's talking about a second exodus. This exodus, of course, is not going to be a deliverance from the wilderness. This exodus is going to come with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus uh, is going to bring, or he's going to bring promised salvation. And what does he do? He levels the ground for the Messiah. Why does he do that? Because you know why? The religious part of Israel is not preaching the good news. They have given up the good news. So John the Baptist comes, clears the way, he's, he's, he's preaching a, uh, to be a, a gospel of repentance also, and of course, He's preaching to a deadened and shallow religious uh, group of people, to people who were indifferent and lackadaisical about spiritual matters and a people affected by all kinds of subtle forms of hypocrisy. The current spiritual condition of the time in which John the Baptizer ministered are twofold, religious formality and, of course, comfortable hypocrisy. So John had come on the scene and cleared out all the obstacles for the coming of the Lord Jesus and his message, the gospel message of the kingdom. So what was part of that, that message? John the Baptist preached repentance of sin, paving the way for pointing sinners to the Messiah. And then, of course, Jesus comes behind John and preaches the same message of repentance where it tells us in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So, repentance becomes a vital part of preaching the gospel of Christ. And repentance is that conscious recognition that you are a sinner and that you are turning to a Savior who can forgive your sin and cancel it, make you right with God, and reconcile you, once an enemy, to himself and give you eternal life. So see, the, in the equation of the, the prophet was this understanding that someday there's going to be eternal life that comes through the message of God to the people. See, the word of God, carries the divine seed with the message of hope and eternal life. So if you look again at our passage of Scripture in verse number 25, you'll see this, that it says, but the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word which was preached to you. In other words, the same word of God that... Isaiah prophesied about and spoke to the people about to bring them comfort is the message that we actually have today, that we preach today. It's the same eternal word of God that plants the eternal seed of God in someone's heart, which produces the holiness, which produces the fear of God, which produces the love for the brethren, the love for God, which produces this future look of all of it coming together in the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, we have the same Word of God. And that is something that is quite amazing and quite thrilling that we are actually in a position to have that. So that's the passage of Scripture. But the Word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the Word that was preached to you. So your new life... Will last forever. It won't be like your mortal life that's going to die. It's going to be something that lasts forever. Now we don't always. I can't get that concept. We don't. We we don't necessarily live with that in our mind. And uh, but we need to stop centering on our attention on this life that will all too quickly end, and instead focus our strength and our attention on serving God and the new life that will last forever. Even in the midst of trials and temptations and testings and whatever the world can throw at us, whatever uh, the human body can throw at us, whatever kind of physical thing we're going through, whatever kind of emotional thing we're going through. See, we can handle those things because we realize that we our life is fading and it's decaying and it's going to pass away no matter what we do. But there's something that's never going to pass away and it's the new life in us that God has given us. So what should we be grasping so far in our study of 1 Peter? Well, we should be grasping this. Since he who begot us is holy, we his children must be holy. Since he is our judge and has ransomed us at a great price, we his children must conduct ourselves in reverential fear. Since we are born again, of the corruptible seed of the word of God. We are brethren. Our relationship to each other must be one of sacrificial love and children of one Father. And since we have been begotten by means of the eternal word of God, we should long for the milk of the word as the true and proper source of nourishment. See, that's, what we, that's where Peter is bringing us. He is bringing us to realize that, listen, all these things that we have, fixed hope, to live a holy life, to fear God, to love one another, leads us to the last exhortation in this section on salvation, and it's this. Christians are exhorted to crave the word of God. We're exhorted to do that because it is the source of life. It is the source of growth. And so that's what we get in chapter 2 verse 1 through 3. We get this understanding that we are to have that we are to crave the word of God. Now, this comes with two things, a negative command and a positive command. Look at verse number 1 of chapter 2. I'll read verse 1 through 3 and then we'll get the we'll go back to see the negative and the positive it says therefore verse number 1 of chapter 2 putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander verse 2 like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that it may that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the lord so the negative command is this to And the positive command contained in that verse, we see the negative command first is to strip off the sinful desires that stifle spiritual growth. That's what we're to do. We're we're to strip these things off of us. And if you notice, if if you are paying attention to the text, you'll find something out in verse number one. You'll find out that it's our responsibility to strip off uh, the sinful desires that stifle spiritual growth. It's our responsibilities. But also that these sins that are listed there are relational and community sins. They stifle our growth with each other because they hinder our growing relationship with each other and our community unity. Let's look back at it. Look at verse number one. It says, here's the first one. It says, all malice. What is malice? malice? Malice could be also translated as evil wickedness, trouble, even a desire from Ephesians to put your hand around somebody's neck and start choking them. It, it, it leads to hatred of somebody. And then it says also in verse number 10, it says, all deceit. Deception, guile, a person who who wants to mislead or trick others with the desire to take advantage or control of them. You ever meet anybody like that? Right? We've done that ourselves. Psalms, Psalms tell us in chapter 34, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. And then a third sin is, is hypocrisy. Now, if you notice, all is not connected to all of them, but it could be, because it just is all-inclusive. It's, it, the all points to the totality of sin's removal. In other words, you don't play with sin. You don't entertain sin. You don't feed sin. All your sins need to go into the garbage. If you don't, then what it actually does is it hinders your own spiritual growth and unity and balance in the community when we hold on to these things. And then the next one is hypocrisy. False everything. Insin- insincerity. The ability to want to fool somebody to think you're something that you're not. I just have a little story here. Could you, can I have a little, give you a little story? I never, I really understood hypocrisy because something happened to me one day. I, I, when I was in Bible college, I met this young man, and we became friends. We, we were in class together, and we we started working out together. And um, and he was not the uh, kind of he was a very kind. He seemed to be a very kind person. He, he uh, endeared himself to me, and um, along the way, I. Uh, he re- he needed a car to get around and i said to him well you know what my father has a car and this was this was back in 1982 and my father was not a believer yet and so i said Look, my father got an extra car he was been wanting asking me if i know anybody who needs one and he could sell it to you for a good price and so i told my father about it I said yeah bring him down i brought him down and um, uh, he gave, uh, my father gave the price, and he says, yeah, I'll be willing to play that. And so he says, Here, here's the deposit. He gave him a small deposit, and he would play monthly. And my father said, okay, I'll, I'll be all right with that, being that I'm vouching for his character. And so he, we, we transfer the car, he gets in, he drives away, and he drives off into the sunset, sunset, and I never saw him again. See, masking inward evil by an outward show of righteousness is what hypocrisy is. And of course, I felt like I was right in the middle because I'm trying to witness to my dad, and now I'm vouching for this guy's Christian character. And he drives away. And then I find out, I I go to school the next week, and I I get called in the office. And they said, you know this guy's Steve? And I said, yeah. He says, well, you know what? He's got warrants for his arrest, like in the state of New Jersey and other states. And I was just totally blown away. He gave no indication. I may have been a little naive, too. Uh, so I tried to recoup that with my dad, and uh, it was tough. But you know what? About three or four years later, my father gets a phone call. It's from this guy, Steve. And he says, listen, I'm, I'm really sorry I did that to you. I shouldn't have. I was wrong. I want to pay for the rest of the car. And my father says, no, you don't, don't pay me anything. The apology is enough, and uh, that's the last I heard of him. I don't know anything else beside that, but I understood that day what hypocrisy was and and how it looks and how it could really fool you to think that you're, you're you're looking at something genuine, and it's not. So see, God is saying, and the Scripture is telling us, don't have this characteristic in your life don't have this sin in your life and don't nurture this sin because it is one that stifles your growth and then of course he mentioned the next one is envy envy wants others what it really wants what others have it's another way to say it's jealousy spite the opposite of thankfulness for goodness that comes to others people who are envious of what other people have and what God's given them instead of being thankful that other people may have more than you, right? And because God allowed it to be so and not envy people because you may want what they want. Covetousness and envy are stiflers of growth and destroy the unity of the body. And then, of course, the last one he mentions. Now, he's not mentioning all these. These are not comprehensive, all the sins that we should be avoiding. These are the ones specifically that he's saying it's going to stifle your love for the brethren if you, if you don't put these off. It's going to stifle your own spiritual growth if you don't put these off. It's going to stifle your relationship with God if you don't put these things off. And then he says the last one was all slander. That's, that means the ability with your words to speak evil against someone uh, or gossip or defame them or to run them down with words to speak against someone in order to harm that person's reputation. And you know the power of words, right? A person doesn't have to be there for you to run them down. Most of the time, they're not, right? You're just trying to gain some advantage or making yourself look better because you run somebody down. We can't, those kinds of sins cannot be in our, the congregations of God's people. So if you don't throw all these sins on the garbage pile, if not, you'll stifle your growth, And as far as loving the brethren, you need to put off all relational and community-destroying vices like these sins. All these sins aim at harming other people, while biblical love and holiness seek the good and the advancement of others. So until these filthy rags of sin are put off, there is no spiritual growth or very little spiritual growth and you'll remain stuck in the refuge of your undiscarded sin and you'll remain in the dumpster. As a Christian, you don't want to remain in the dumpster. You want to get out of the dumpster. Let's get out of the dumpster with these sins and make sure we're watching that we are taking care of these sins. So all these five general sins, and they are general, are desire quenchers. They're Growth stifling quenchers, and all show spiritual immaturity, not spiritual maturity. Now, real quick, take your Bibles and turn over to First Corinthians chapter three, because Paul is talking to the Corinthian church and he's kind he's saying to a group of believers with stifled spiritual growth that failed to strip off certain sins. And notice what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. It says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. For you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not able, not yet able. Verse 3, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, you are, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? So what's the problem here? Jealousy and strife. They're not getting rid of it. They're not, they're not stripping it from their life. And so therefore it's hindering not only their spiritual growth, but it's hindering Paul being able to feed them with more meat of the word of God. So this new life, this new self that we have because of our position in Christ puts on new clothing. So you get a sense in this passage that the new self is alive, but not instantly mature. It has to continue to grow in Christ likeness. Some have described it as a baby that has everything complete in this new small package, but now needs to be nourished and fed to grow healthy and mature. And you know what happens if a baby stops eating, right? That's not a good situation. That's a situation that's going to be very detrimental if it continues. So I I want to raise a question at this particular point, and the question is this. What are the marks of the genuine new self within the believer? What are some of the things that we can look for? Well, here's the first thing. A nature that loves God. We have a new nature, right? A nature that loves God. You shall love the Lord thy God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and with all your strength. And then also, a nature that longs for holiness. It's, it's, It's reaching out it wants to keep being set apart by God. It's a nature that senses the resistance between the new self and the flesh. We are we were once dominated in our minds by the sinful by sinful ideas and thinking and desires, but now the word of God are, is pushing those things out. It's like what Paul says in, in Romans 8 for those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So we're now we're setting our minds in something other than what we used to. And then, of course, a nature with a growing sensitivity to sin, and that's the sense you get here in Peter, that there, we become sensitive to these things. Before, we didn't even know we were doing them. Now we're very aware we're doing them. And we catch ourselves, sometimes before they even take place, You know, we're catching our words before they come out of our mouth, saying, well, I don't need to say that. All our default sins are set aside. We have a sensitivity to sin. Also, a new nature that avoids everything condemned in God's word. What becomes important to us? What God says, right? Like Joshua says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. See, that's what we want as believers. We want to do things according to what the word of God says because that's how we hear from God. We hear from God through his word. Sometimes believers, though, will fail to do these things, but nonetheless, it will still be the regular direction of their life to want these things to be so in their character and in their transformation. The word is always the criterion and measuring stick for knowing what is good, what is pleasing to the Lord, and what actually advances maturity in the Christian life. And then, of course, this last one is a nature with an appetite for spiritual things. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 2. 1 Peter 2, verse number 2. Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word so that it may grow, that you may grow in respect to salvation. Let me stop there. All right, so this positive command is what? To set your heart on the uncontaminated milk of the word that will continue your spiritual growth. See, that's what we're exhorted to do. And this is the last exhortation in the realm of this understanding salvation. The terms that are used here, the word for actually word, is the word that means rational and reasonable uh, or even belonging to the real nature of something as belonging to the sphere of the spiritual. That's why some translations use the word spiritual there. It's spiritual in this sense, that the word is reasonable or logical, the logical way for Christians to become what God wishes them to become spiritually. But notice in our verse it says, like newborn babes long. That's a key word there, the whole The whole understanding of a longing for something, craving for something, greatly desiring something. What do you usually do when you greatly desire something? You go get it. That's what you do, right? You go get it. It's an intense desire directed toward an object. Of course, the object here is, is pure milk. It is pointing to the relentless cry of an infant for one thing, it craves for its mother's milk eight to 15 times a day depending on how many ounces they are being fed. Now, all new mothers know that and fathers who have new babies around, a baby's cry can drive you mad. You know, so that, you know what that means? When we hear a baby's cry because the baby's hungry, it must, it must Demand a rapid uh, reply. It, you can't be fooling around with that. Or you're, you're going to have a sleepless night. Things aren't going to go well. You know, arguments happen out of that. An intensity that, that must be satisfied only by pure milk. You can't just give the baby, you know, here's some Doritos. That's not going to happen, right? <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a longing for God's word in the Old Testament. The Old Testament people... Actually, this, this is not a new concept for God's people, to, to long for for the, the word of God. In fact, uh, looking at these passages of Scripture right up on our screen, if you notice from Psalms, my soul is crushed with longing for what? Different words for God's word. It says, therefore, your ordinances at all times. Second one, I, I long, behold, I long for your precepts. Another way of describing the word of God, revive me for your righteousness. And then Psalm 119, verse 131, I opened my mouth wide and panted, for I long for your commandments. Three different words to describe the word of God. And what do you have there? A longing for it. As, wait a minute, there's nothing else to long for? Not like this. There's nothing else to long for like this. Other passages communicate the longing of God's word, like in um, Psalm or like in Job, where it says, "I have not departed from the commandment from the commandment of His lips. I have treasured the words of His mouth more than my necessary food." And of course, that famous one from Jeremiah: "Your words were found, and I ate them." And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. You see, the the, the longing for what? For the word of God. It's the craving metaphor here. It's not just for new infant Christians, though. It is the craving that we should always have all the time. It's for all Christians at all times, who are at all levels of the spiritual growth. And in fact, as we move closer to heaven, our craving should get more intense. Our understanding that we need the, more, the word of God and the, the transformation of the word of God in our, in our mind more than anything else ever. Every day, our view of, God, of the word of God goes higher and higher and higher because you find that in it, is God's word. God speaks to us. It's the king giving a message to his recipients, to those who are in his kingdom. Christians are to exemplify this in their intense yearning for the uncontaminated, unadulterated, pure spiritual milk of the eternal word of God. And of course, all churches should give opportunities for Christians to interact with and learn the deep truths of the Word of God. can do that in Sunday school and uh, weekly expositional preaching and teaching, our youth ministry, our Iron Man ministry starting up again, side by side, home groups. See, being part of everything that can give you more understanding of the Word of God, we should be there all the time. Uh, because... We have a book ministry. We have a library lending, a lending library to give you the ability to take something and learn more about it that's going to benefit your spiritual growth, advance your spiritual growth. So, the purpose of this nourishment for the pure milk of the word is for the believer to grow into the full experience of their salvation. The word of God will literally grow you. Therefore, the Christian should take no spiritual nourishment but the word of God. Christians should never settle for so-called spiritual junk food. Sermonettes for Christianettes, or whatever, or whatever, Christianettes for sermonettes, or whatever. Why is that? Where does it take us? Well, if you notice the next part of our passage in verse number three, our first Peter says this, if you taste it, the lord the kind if you taste it, the kindness of the Lord, so you see the metaphor of taste is still in our passage, so you you see so far from the Word of God in chapter one of Peter, you should have gotten a correct view of God, which should have put a good taste in your heart concerning the kindness of God, and when something tastes good. What does your taste buds tell you? I want more. I want more. See, when you taste the kindness of God and you understand the kindness directed towards you, you're going to want more of his kindness, right? You're going to want more of his goodness, his mercy, and his kindness. That's what you're going to want. So scripture is telling the Christian that they have gotten a taste of this kindness from the word of God, and they were at the acted upon by the word of God to bring eternal life. And so now they need to crave the word of God because the word of God gives us a better understanding of the character of God, which is his goodness, his mercy, and his kindness. And when our spiritual taste buds are energized, we're going to want more and more of the word of God. That's what we're going to want. That's all we're going to want. And we're going to know that it's the pure word of God. And if it's not, you're going to know it's junk food. That's what you're going to know. Psalm 34 eight: Oh, taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So if you want to keep experiencing the kindness of the Lord, stay in the word. Keep craving the word of God. Don't, don't try to sidetrack that. We have to seek the wholesome saving word which is the manna for our soul. That's what feeds our soul. So if you stop craving the pure milk of the word of God, what should you look for? Because if you stop craving it, something's wrong. Right? Something's wrong in your heart. Now it could mean that if you stop craving it forever, you're not a believer. Because if I have an eternal divine seed in my heart producing these things uh, from God, then they will be in my life at different levels. So I'm assuming you are a believer, and now it just seems like you're kind of dry, cold. You're not too interested. How do you know your desire for the word of God has been quenched? Well, all we have to do is go back over these scriptures and we find the answer to that question. Number one, you stop going back to the source of your new life. Verse number 23, for you have been born again, not of seed which is is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. You stop going back to the word of God, right? Secondly, you become careless and negligent in putting off your sins, all right? In our passage, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, and other things, you you just get careless of putting them off, careless of examining yourself. See, there's no desire for the word when sin is not dealt with. Keep getting the garbage out of your life. Also, you stop admitting you still need the word. I I learned enough. I'm older now. I've been in the Word of God. I don't have to study it or crave for it like I used to. Well, it says here, like newborn babes, my craving should be just like a newborn babe no matter where I'm at my spiritual journey. And it should be for one thing, for the pure milk of the Word, not philosophy, not science, not this or that, the Word of God. Your desire for the pure milk of the word of God should always be like a newborn babe's desire for its mother's milk. Also, you stop pursuing spiritual growth. Verse 2, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word so that it may grow, you may grow in respect to salvation. You just stop pursuing spiritual growth. And then, Next, you stop remembering who God is and who you are. Look at verse 3 through 5. It says in First Peter chapter 2, verse 3 to 5, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord and coming to him as a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up to a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So those are some of the things that you look for if somehow you are not craving the word anymore. And if you're not ever craving it again, look for your spiritual condition because you need the gospel. and You need the seed of the word of God in your heart. So Christians are exhorted to pray for the word by stripping off the sinful desires that stifle spiritual growth and by setting your heart on the uncontaminated word of God for continued spiritual growth. And, of course, that will bring you into all the areas of exhortation that we mentioned so far, a fixed hope on Christ, holy life, fear of God, love one for another, and a craving for the word of God. They all go together, and they're not separate Package It's one package. That's what it will produce in your heart. And so it's pretty clear that Peter wants us to understand our salvation. And he wants us to understand more than anything that we are definitely saved because this living principle of the divine seed is working in our life and we see it and we're sometimes wrestling with it and there's the tension between the mortal life and the new eternal life that we have, and that's what's supposed to happen. But our ultimate desire is to pursue God's word. So there's, there's no other source that is perfectly safe and reliable to produce real spiritual growth and godliness than the unadulterated word of God. There's nothing else. You cannot substitute it. And God's people said what? Well, Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I do thank you for this section of Scripture. It's not only a section that is fleshing out theology, but it's also giving us a clear understanding of how that theology looks practically. And Lord, for that, I know that I have been very thankful because we can actually look at our own life and evaluate it. And Lord, if there's anything in this passage that has, has come to us today and brought to our attention um, our own walk with you, then I pray, Lord, that if sins need to be put off, if things need to be taken care of, that we would not waste time. And if any garbage that's in our heart that's still there, that we're still kind of holding on to, I pray, Lord, we'd cast it away from us and strip it off and put on the new garment of righteousness. And I pray, Lord, that you would always make us aware of our craving for truth, our desire to know more than we do know about who you are, what your plan is, what you're doing, so we can be not just learners but teachers of the Word of God, that we can actually explain it to other people. And that the word of God would be shown in our life by our changed life. So thank you, Lord, for this passage of scripture. I know it's going to be beneficial for us from this day forward. And I pray in Christ's name, amen.